We are three weeks into a new series of messages that we're calling Finding Jesus. We're calling it Finding Jesus not because Jesus is lost, but because he sometimes gets lost to us. Our vision of him is so clouded by stuff, and we're spending the Lenten season trying to figure out how to reduce the noise and to reduce the stuff between us and Jesus. So we've talked about stuff in week one. Uh, We talked about our busyness and how we fill up our schedules with stuff, and that gets in the way of us seeing Jesus last week. And today, we're talking about intake. We're talking about literally consumerism and how that can get between us and Jesus. Uh, Usually in our time together on Sunday mornings, we break open uh, what we believe to be God's Word. We'll break open the Bible, and we'll try to find the point of challenge for us, or we'll try to find an application point or two. But today, we're going to look at an incredibly fascinating exchange between Jesus and a young woman. And today, what I really want us to do is just riff on Jesus and be amazed at him and wonder at how he manages his relationships and his interactions with others. And before we get started, let's pray. We ask you to come this morning, fount of every blessing. We believe you're already here. Source of what we need, source of real life. We ask you to come. Be with us, hover here, speak to us. Open our ears, open our chests. Draw us into your presence. As we look at you today, Jesus, I pray that you would make yourself clearer and that you would smile and that you would draw us near and that we would be able to feel just how completely satisfactory you are. I pray that we would know in the deepest part of ourselves that you're enough and that that perspective would, boy, everything else, God, would come into alignment because of that. You're enough. You're our supply. You're everything we need. We come to you this morning with that in mind and heart, and yet, God, we confess that we often don't feel that. We confess to you this morning that we are professional consumers. We have been trained by our culture. We confess to you this morning that our vision is blurred. We don't have that often, God. We miss out on that joy that Jesse was talking about. And, you know, God, I tend to think of this as just another thing you want from us and of us. But this is what you want for us. You're offering us real life, and this morning I pray that you would help us again say yes to that. And if there's anyone here today who has never experienced the life that you offer, speak, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. So Webster offers two definitions for consumerism. The first is the belief that it's good for people to spend a lot of money on goods and services. And the second definition is the actions of people who spend money on goods and services in ever greater amounts. So it's well-documented fact that ours is a consumer culture. While being only 5% of the world's population, America consumes 30% of the world's goods and services and energy. 
diapers, corn and milk, steel, gas, televisions, shirts, phones, lamps, cereals, and exercise equipment. By all accounts, we consume far more than we need in a, a wide array of items. Social historians tell us that consumerism really grew up here as a way of life in post-World War II America when it was encouraged by you know, a virtual government and cultural sponsorship. It was seen as a way of pulling us out of the doldrums of depression and war. To consume, we were told, was to be a good citizen, and we became very good citizens. We glutted ourselves. What were once luxuries became necessities overnight. I found this interesting. This list of items was noted in a 2012 article from The Atlantic. This is not a Christian author. In 1900, less than 10% of families in America owned a stove or had access to electricity or phones in 1900. In 1915, less than 10% of families owned a car. I remember my grandfather telling me he had the memory of the first time as a teenager he heard a car, ran for a mile so that he could see it. In 1930, less than 10% of American families owned a refrigerator or a clothes washer, and despite what uh, Kevin would tell you, I don't remember those days. In 1945, less than 10% of families owned a clothes dryer or air conditioning, even in the South. In 1960, less than 10% of families owned a dishwasher or color TV. 1960, less than 10% of families owned a dishwasher. I remember the first time my family got a color TV. In 1975, less than 10% of families owned a microwave. You remember those days? Everybody thought microwaves were going to turn us all into nuclear monsters. In 1990, 1990, less than 10% of families had a cell phone or access to the Internet. The article concluded, the Atlantic article concluded by noting this, quote, Today, at least 90% of the country has a stove, electricity, a car, a fridge, clothes washer, air conditioning, color television, microwave, and cell phone. They make our lives better. They might even make us happier, but they are never enough. End quote. We have to have it our way. In fact, in response to our consumerism, an entire army of marketers and advertisers emerged. An industry grew, emerged, whose sole purpose is to deepen our gluttony. Perhaps it was true. Perhaps America did need to begin consuming, but few would deny that we have taken it too far. Evidence of our overindulgence can be seen in its ultimate fruit, which is that after several decades of unparalleled consumption, we are worried, depressed, in debt, and obese in record numbers. It seems that we have simply taken in too much. We have forgotten that with every inhale, you must exhale. You cannot continually consume. It is not a sustainable way of doing life. We know this is true. This is universally agreed upon. The backlash is everywhere. The articles, documentaries, movies, books, seminars all decry our addiction to consumption. We all know that we're not really buying products. We're buying promises. We know that's why they use voluptuous girls to sell us cars and beer. We know that one has nothing to do with the other. We know that bold detergent isn't really part of the fabric of life. We know that Citibank can't really turn your dreams into reality. We know that we can't always have it our way at Burger King. We know that it's not all inside J.C. Penney's, and yet we persist. We keep buying the promise. Our debt grows, our anxiety grows, the distance from real connection in our culture grows. Our consumption grows. 
Why? Well, could it be that there's something more going on than we're just naive? Could it be that we end up believing the commercial because we want so badly to believe the commercial? Could it be that we're trying to fill an empty space? Turn with me to John chapter 4, and you will see there what I think is one of the most extraordinary interactions in the entire New Testament, and there are some extraordinary ones. But this is Jesus at his best. This is Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. If you've got uh, your phone, John 4, type it into a Bible app, or if you have a Bible, open with me to John 4. The verses will be on the screen, paragraph by paragraph, and again, we're just going to riff on Jesus and be amazed at how he interacts this morning. And I hope we'll see a little bit more about ourselves and Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman. Verses 3 through 8, I'll start with in the middle of verse 3. He left Judea to the south and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, which was right between uh, Judea and Galilee. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jacob, the patriarch, early in the Old Testament, still there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon in the middle of the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The village of Sychar was near. And this well and the village of Sychar were in the shadow of two large mountains, one of them an important mountain to the Samaritans, Mount Gerizim. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Now there are two very dramatic social prohibitions which Jesus violates here. First, in the ancient society of men, women were to be seen and not heard. No comments, men. In fact, a woman's testimony was not even valid in Jewish court. More than that, Fraternizing with women in private conversation was considered to be dangerous. Jewish rabbis were known to warn against speaking with a woman in public and to forbid it in private except for with relatives. Yet here is Rabbi Jesus, alone, speaking with a woman. Secondly, not only a woman, but a Samaritan. They may be even more problematic. Samaritans were half-breeds. They had some Jewish blood but blood that had been tainted by generations of intermarrying outside of the faith. Worse, they were theological half-breeds. They intermingled faith in God with beliefs and practices from a, a wide array of other sources. Samaritans, for example, held mostly to the first five books of Moses, but nothing else. They rejected the prophets, the songs, and the history. They worshipped at an alternate site which they had erected on Mount Gerizim. And they followed practices that were crude and dishonoring to God, including the use of temple prostitutes. The anti-Samaritan prohibitions were so strict and so important that a devout Jew would not eat from a bowl that had been touched by a Samaritan. Now, geographically, as I said, uh, Samaria was in between two sections of Jewish land, Galilee to the north, which was Jesus' home, and then to the south, Judea, which was home to Jerusalem. Samaritans were so abhorrent to Jews that some Jews would detour east through the Jordan Valley when going from Galilee 
down to Judea or from Judea up to Galilee just to avoid walking through Samaria. Let me restate that. Many Orthodox, perhaps most Orthodox Jews would walk several days out of their way simply to avoid walking through Samaria. Now these prejudices were well known to Samaritans and to ancient women. So, in a typical interaction like this one in John chapter 4, a Samaritan woman would have given water to the stranger without even making eye contact. And he would have drunk. She would have known her place. Not this woman. She's brassy. And she's comfortable with men. Maybe too comfortable. Can you see how this exchange could have easily become a debate, even a quarrel? You get the feeling she's done this before. She's used to feeling defensive and to putting others on the defensive. She may be expecting Jesus to say something like this. How dare you talk to me in such a manner, you Samaritan dog? A Samaritan and a woman. Little wonder you're at the well by yourself drawing your own water in the middle of the day. This kind of response wouldn't have surprised her. She would have certainly had a comeback. She's used to such a product. But I believe she's really shopping for something else. I believe she's teasing. No doubt she's done a lot of that as well. I believe she's hoping for flirtatious banter from this surprising stranger. She'd really like to hear something like this. Perhaps I could ask you for a little something else later, but let's start with a drink and see where that goes. Maybe a wink and a knowing smile. No doubt she's had many men give her this kind of response before. That's the kind of response that offers a promise. Companionship, compliments, and the brief fleeting feeling of belonging. This is the product she knows, and I believe that's the product she's really looking for. But Jesus goes in an astoundingly different direction. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Let's be clear. Jesus is not only the source of true life, but he's the disruptor of false life. The Samaritan woman is out of her depth. Verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Are you really such a big deal? Notice how chatty she is and how coy. Are you bigger than our spiritual fathers? She's really good. She's instinctively trying to get the conversation back on familiar territory. She's unflustered on the surface. But I don't think that's what she's really feeling. I think what she's really feeling is, wait, wait, what? Hey, hey, let's mix swords, mister. I'd prefer you flirt with me, but I'll take an argument if that's the way it goes. Only I'm not exactly sure what kind of game you're playing. And Jesus, the hound of heaven, the unrelenting and loving surgeon continues. He presses in. He pokes and peeks and intrigues. And finally, he presses till the wound is fully exposed because it cannot be healed until it is exposed. Verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst 
Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, here's the money shot. The conversation per Jesus' direction has already turned inward, and now there's no going back. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman he's got something to offer that will meet a need deeper than water, and he's not selling it. It's not commercial. There's no negotiation. There's no banter. You don't need wealth. You don't need cleverness. He's offering to give it. What the Jews were trying to find through the observance of rules, what almost every commercial you and I watch is offering to satisfy, what this woman was looking for in the arms of men, Jesus is offering for free. And not partially, but fully. And not for a day or a year, but eternally. 